and welcome to another episode of the Auto Week Podcast, a place for all your car news, your drives, your racing, and everything in between. Today, we're talking the Indianapolis 500. Congratulations to Kumasato, another one under the belt. We are also diving into some mini news, which for the Folding Top fans might not be good. And we are talking about a Jeep Grand Wagoneer. Where's Graham? Anyway, it looks like Jeep is doing another Grand Wagoneer. But first, let's dive into many. Of course, you're here with me, Wesley Wren. And the great Jake Lingaman is joining us, as well as Mr. Wes Raynal. How are we doing today, boys? Great. Thanks for having me. All righty. Us. Thanks for having us. Anytime. So, Mini, what is going on with the folks over at Mini? Wes, you want to take that one? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know much about that situation. Just that there's a word on the street is that they're dropping uh, their little two-door convertible. Uh, actually, my neighbor across the street has one of those. So he'll be sad. His wife will be sad. Uh, but that it's just a rumor for now. And uh, and it's speculated that it'll be in 2024, which last time I checked, that is a long time from now. And I, Mini is one of those companies that does not always report uh, its sales results. So we can't speculate as to how that little car is selling. But one must assume it's not selling very well or they would be keeping it. Well, and the convertible variant on top of that is probably selling even worse than the standard two-door. Right, exactly. That, But, you know, like I said, many part of the BMW group not reporting sales on a regular basis. I think they do them quarterly now with like a lot of companies. General Motors is one. Ford does quarterly sales now. Very, well, I shouldn't say very few, but fewer than earlier automakers stopped reporting sales on a regular sort of monthly basis. Yeah, I drove the latest Mini, I think, when this the latest generation came out. And so if they're saying 2024 is the rumor, that's probably like when this generation runs its course. Yeah. And they'll get rid of it. Uh, but moving on a little bit, Jeep Grand Wagoneer. And we're talking about a new one, not an old one and not a reinvented or reimagined one. That's right. Jeep is allegedly bringing out a new Grand Wagoneer, and we're going to see it shortly. But what does that mean exactly? Well, first, it's, it's official. It's, it's not alleged. It's official. We're going to see it on uh, September 3rd. So definitely go ahead and check autoweek.com on that day to see uh, live pictures of it. Until September 3rd, I'm saying allegedly. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, we've seen, what, three or four teaser shots, and basically we're looking at some badges and some grills and maybe a little bit of the inside of those you can also see at autoweek.com. Um, but from what we can tell, at least the two inside shots, it does look like it's going to be like a super luxurious uh, SUV. I mean, it looked like, you know, those cool little tweeters they put on the dash, those cool looking, I don't know what brand, if they're Bang & Olufsen or Bowers & Wilkins or Raynal & Ren or whatever the brand is on those. Rizzoli & Isles. Rizzoli & Isles. Uh, uh, if it was uh, Raynal & Ren, I don't think I'd be on this show right now. And I don't I think, think that would work all that well. I'd be broadcasting from my one of my villas. <laughs> They're called Franklin and Bash. And <laughs> they uh, and, and they have like a nice little glass. It looks like a glass or a crystal rotary dial, you know, a la BMW's iDrive or uh, what Audi's doing or Cadillac. Everyone's kind of doing it now. So it looks like it's going to be super luxurious. Uh, definitely three rows, seven seats. Um, I'm guessing I would say bigger than the Durango, right? We think, uh, Reynolds. It's got to be bigger than the Durango. I think so. Right? I mean, yeah. we've been hearing about this thing for almost 10 years, it feels like. Uh, if not 10 years. So it's long overdue. I'll be interested to see if they put the wood on the side, the fake wood on the side, like the old days. Uh, I think that should at least be an option. 
And if I sat in the planning meetings, I would be trying to get them to, to do the fake wood. It's a long time coming. I think it's way overdue. I don't know why it took Jeep this long to do it. I guess they had all the priorities, like, you know, the Gladiator ain't selling bad. So maybe they're smarter about this stuff than I am. But I'm glad it's coming. In my vast hours of research for this show, I started looking at used ones, like sort of 80, late 80s, 90s Grand Wagoneers. And sort of like I'm bringing a trailer, they range, they start around 20. I see one for 16 grand, but they hover around 20, 21, 22. But, oh, wow, there's one for 52, which is nutty. That's kind of nutty. Uh, but then you have places like this, these wagon master guys out in Wyoming or Montana, wherever they are, and they're getting 80, 90 grand for these things. So, I mean, they, they really, they redo them, you know, from top to bottom. Right. So yeah, yeah. maybe it's another instant classic on, on our, that we have on our hands. Um, okay. Well, I want to definitely agree on the wood grain. If the first press shot or the first reveal of that thing does, if it does not have wood grain, I'm going to be disappointed. I, I will accept that it can be an option. It does, you don't have to get wood grain, but the first press shot better have that wood grain. And I swear that with modern wood technology, I feel like it could look better and be more durable than the old ones ever were. You know, the, the wood part of the old ones ever were. Well, the wood part of the old ones was vinyl. So I don't think it can get much more durable than vinyl. I mean, I'm really looking forward to this thing. I like big trucks. Uh, I like to tow big things. And I've always been a fan of the old car, the old Wagoneer. And I'm excited because I'm sure, you know, the capability has come such a long way in these vehicles in the last 20, 30 years. I think this thing's going to be, I mean, I just don't think they're going to be able to build them fast enough, at least at first. Now, having said that, I have heard a lot of rumors from people inside uh, Fiat Chrysler that it's not a good-looking car and that one of the reasons it's taken this long is because it's been sent back to design uh, at least once. So we'll see what it looks like when it comes out. I've heard a lot of grumbling. Uh, even from my Jeep friends who, who work on the Jeep brand at FCA about how the thing looks. But we'll see. Beauty yeah, well, is in the eye of the beholder. Do we think that yeah. this will be unibody construction or body on frame? I don't uh, know what this is going to be. Maybe it's a stretch Grand Cherokee. Well, we saw some really ugly spy shots of a stretch Grand Cherokee, or really ugly uh, renderings of a stretch Grand Cherokee. I, I certainly hope it's not that. It's They really, especially with Ford, going retro with the Bronco, it, I think it needs to look, ha, need to have some retro cues to it for sure. And the old one, definitely polarizing. I think, can we agree that the last few years were the best looking ones, the the 87 to 91 or whatever? I think they all look cool. Jake, I don't agree with that hot take. I, I like Mr. Randall. I think that they all are pretty fun. Well, that's you know, cool. And there was, and then uh, if I if I recall a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago, there was the Chinese seven-seater Jeep unibody. It might have been called Grand Wagoneer. I can't remember, but it was for Asian markets only where Jeep is humongously popular. So they did a seven-seater over there and everyone was speculating how close ours is going to be to that one. So if listeners want to Google that car, uh, like you know, Chinese Jeep seven-seater, you'll see real cars running around, not renderings. Well, and definitely a seven-seater. I mean, besides that, Chrysler has the Durango, but Jeep needs a needs a seven a three row, you know, a seven seater. I can see, I definitely see people absolutely looking for a you know looking for a family, a, a big family hauler like that. Um, and then engine wise, I mean, obviously usual suspects: three point six Pentastar, three hundred some horsepower, five point seven liter Hemi, three fifty, three seventy five, something like that. Uh, Probably that diesel, the diesel that was in yeah. that Wrangler that I drove, or some sure. version of that. 
I would imagine the base engine will be the same from the Ram, the the Pentastar with the mild hybrid system. Yeah, that would be nice too. That that would that's actually makes a lot of sense considering the more luxurious nature of the vehicle. And that that is a good combination. Having driven the the Ram with the mild hybrid on for the launch, that is just a good powertrain combination. Yeah, these mild hybrids are really kind of the best of both worlds type thing. Obviously, we love the Mercedes. Uh, Chrysler has theirs. Or FCA has theirs. And yeah, yeah, that's uh, that is a good call, Ren. And with the bigger footprint of this Grand Wagoneer and Chrysler's affinity for oh, FCA or what's their name now? FCA is fine. We'll accept FCA. All right. And FCA's affinity for stuffing that Hellcat engine into all of their vehicles. Would we be surprised to see a 6.2 liter supercharged Grand Wagoneer? I think, I mean, I'd be happy. Uh, I think a lot of people would be happy. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. And I, I have thought this is a decent story idea for a while. But see, like, like how many would they have to sell to make it profitable? Like a thousand, like 10,000, 20,000 or something like that to like whatever they need to do, mess with the lines or the whatever to put it, the Hellcat in there. I bet they would sell the crap out of them. I mean, that damn T- the TRX sold out in what day or something like that, right? For all those. Well, it's a Jeep thing. And it looks like we're all going to understand on September 3rd, you said, Jake? Yes. September 3rd when that... Grand Wagoneer is finally unveiled. I'm sure we'll touch on it then after we actually know the facts. But now is as good a time as any to jump over to our friends on the motorsports section to talk the Indianapolis 500. And we are back, back with the racing section, the section that everybody loves to hear about, myself included. You're here today, still with me, Wesley Wren. The great Mike Pryson has joined us. Mike, how's your day going? So far, so good. I'm sure it's only going to get better from here. I can only imagine. And Matt, the man on the ground weaver, was at the 500, and now he's here. Matt, that was a heck of a race. It was, despite some opinions to the contrary. I can't wait to get into it. Which we are going to get into in a minute. But obviously, Takuma Sato taking home his second Borg Warner. What a victory. And what else happened in that race, Matt? I mean, uh, from... from the green flag to the checkered. What happened? So listen, it's, it's really hard to to verbalize the 2020 Indy 500 because it's it was unique. I mean, obviously, no fans. They lack the usual pomp and circumstance, the atmosphere. But I, but I said this during our last podcast. You know, if if you get down to the final 15 laps and you start to to bite your nails, you walk back and forth. In my case, from my my spot in the media center to the window, look back up at the monitor, you start to feel tense. Yeah, it matters because at the end of the day, they were giving out a baby Borg, and they don't grow on trees. You can't go plant a Borg Warner trophy and and get one 17 days later. I mean, th- these are hard to get. You say that, Matt, but I'm trying my hardest to genetically modify a uh, an apple tree so you you, you hold you hold your breath buddy <laughs> let, let me know how it goes but uh I, I thought it was a thrilling race and look we can get into the finish in a minute but to me this is what it comes down to when you get down to 10 laps to go you know a caution could end the race at any minute the same feeling that some fans want to get out of a green white checkered or a red flag and a one to go shootout you get that the moment you get to 10 to go because you knew it as soon as the caution waved for spencer piggott uh, spinning and crashing out of turn four on the front stretch you know that ended the race and scott dixon had every opportunity to to push the limit to, to get on the button and try to pass to kumasato and he couldn't and so from my standpoint the right guy won regardless of the fact that scott dixon 
and led 111 laps and he got beat. His team got beat. They got beat on strategy and they got beat on fuel mileage. And then they got beat by being in second at the time of the caution. I thought that was a thrilling finish uh, with a lot of good storylines. Matt, you say that, but the Dixon in his post-race stuff did talk about, hey, he was surprised that they didn't red flag it. I mean, it, that to me kind of flies in the face of not, not only what you're saying, but you know, history and tradition at the Indy 500. It doesn't, they don't do the green white checker yet. It seemed like uh, that was kind of what Dixon was hoping for. Well, of course he was hoping for it. He was hoping for a lot of things. He was hoping that he, he was making better fuel mileage and he didn't have to intentionally give up the lead to Kuma Sato with 30 to go. He didn't get past. He gave Taku the lead because yep. Sato's team, the 30 team, did a better job of saving fuel throughout the race. That's the thing about leading 111 laps, especially when there wasn't a lot of cautions to save fuel. Uh, you burned more fuel. So, of course, he was rooting for a lot of things to go different, and they didn't. But here's the deal. Caution came out right after Takuma Sato had crossed the line with four laps to go. So you've got to be able to open up pit road. You literally have to. And you risk, you might be able to get one lap in. So I, I, I could entertain the possibility that maybe you do the one lap shootout. But here's the other thing to. It would have taken at least 50 minutes to over an hour to repair the track because Spencer Piggott hit the entrance to pit road and that was going to be a lengthy repair. You know, to anyone who says the race wasn't as, as enjoyable without the finish, does having, does waiting, you know, 90 minutes for 90 seconds worth of racing change the quality of racing? I would argue not. And it would actually, it would, it would tick me off as a, as a racing purist that Takuma Sato went out and won that race for all the reasons that I outlined only to have the leader be a sitting duck going into turn one on a restart, a one-to-go restart. It would have been a chicken poop way to win a race. To me, I think this is the right way to do it. It's the Indy 500. It's not the Indy 502, 503, and the right guy won. And if you start expecting, this this is what it comes down to me. The moment you start expecting a finish and you start expecting a green white checkered and all the stuff that people are arguing, and I wrote this on on autoweek.com, nothing ever becomes good enough because you look at NASCAR. NASCAR tries so hard to placate their fans that, you know, it's not enough to have a a finish. We've got to have a a green flag finish, one green white checker, three green white checkers. We want to have as many drivers have a chance to win. So now we're we're going to have lucky dogs. We're going to, we're going to put people back on the lead lap. Well, this guy has got too big of a lead. So we're going to throw three arbitrary just because cautions during the course of the race. Now they're talking about adding a fourth because they, they just want more restarts. The, the playoff started as 10 drivers. Now, then it moved to 12. Then it was 13th driver in the 12 driver playoff in 2013. Now it's 16. Nothing is ever good enough once you start to go down that path. And to me, I think, you know, a lot of people said that, well, the moment you start running off fans is the moment that becomes a bad idea. Well, last I checked, that, that place is still drawing 300,000 people in person. And I know the TV ratings were, were bad this year. It's a pandemic. I give them a free pass. I thought that if you can recondition yourself out of the NASCAR mindset to appreciate the entire 200 laps instead of just the last lap, you're going to be a better, more educated and more entertained fan. And speaking to your TV ratings a little bit, Matt, I have to think that has something to do with just how it was timed, right? I mean, in a traditional Indianapolis 500, you have the entire month of May to get excited, to get your hopes up, to get involved and engaged with the race. And this year, we only had, I mean, a week, two weeks? Yeah, I, th- I think I think there was a lack of buzz. There was a very clear lack of buzz. Uh, all the good storylines in the world, you know, Fernando, Marco on the pole, Elio, one last shot with Penske. A lot of good storylines 
storylines for this race, but I think that it's probably fair to say that this didn't, leading up to the Indy 500, feel like the Indy 500. It just felt like a 500-mile race at Indianapolis. Again, they're handing out the Borg Warner. I don't know if it's fair to say it's not the Indy 500, but I bet a lot of fans did. And there was a lot more competition. The NHL playoffs, the NBA playoffs, regular season baseball, uh, head-to-head conflict with NASCAR. NASCAR started halfway through, and usually you've got you know the Coke 600 later that night. I think that hurt. I think that hurt big time. Uh, that That's the same audience. I mean, the NBA, NHL, baseball crowd isn't necessarily the Indy 500 crowd, but a lot of them are the NASCAR crowd. That hurt too. So I think that once you throw all of that in the blender and you know, mix it together, you've got a, a very disappointing TV number. And I'm sure at least more than one person was out mowing their grass listening to Quick Spin presented by Auto Week. You can find that on wherever podcasts are played. But Matt, you touched on this a few minutes ago and also on the during the Indy 500 preview. Did this feel like a 500 to you? Did you get that pit in your stomach, that anxious anticipation of a victor like you normally do? Very briefly. And, you know, it, it's hard. It's hard because, you know, when, when you typically go to the Indy 500, I am always on the front stretch. It's full of people. Uh, someone uh, sent me a, t- a tweet and said the first time he took his dad to the Indy 500 and they cleared the infield, they cleared the front stretch and said, you know, drivers to your cars and you see the sea of humanity empty out and disperse. The the Twitter guy, his dad was like, I didn't realize the cars were down there because you can't see the cars. It's so full of people and it's so full of that buzz and atmosphere and you, you didn't have that. And to me, I felt it just when I thought I would at the end of the race, when you realize that someone's face is going to be, you know, placed on the Borg Warner trophy, that's forever. You know, that's uh, Ray Haroon, that's AJ, that's that's Al Sr., that's Rick Mears, that's Simon Pagino, that's forever. And there's only so few things in life that are forever. And that mattered. But in terms of atmosphere, mood, anticipation, and just pure emotion, I don't think it mattered as much as it typically would. I don't think it mattered uh, in the same way that winning the Indy 500, going head-to-head with the U.S. 500 during the split, it didn't matter as much. Now, make no difference. You know, Buddy Lazier is an Indy 500 champion, and that is forever. But I I think that's the analogy you make there. It's still forever. You're still immortalized. But I'll close with this. I think we're all very fortunate that Takuma Sato was not a first-time winner because he's had the real experience. And now he won his second and he won it like this. But I don't think Takuma Sato now, he doesn't have to go to bed thinking, man, I wish I had won in front of 300,000 people instead of zero. It would have been peak Marco Andretti luck to break the Andretti curse, to get out of the car and crickets. And anyone, anyone who would have been a first time winner, you get out of the car, finally you broke through and you won the greatest spectacle in racing. I can't wait to get out and, and to feel this emotion and crickets. Takuma Sato's been there before, and and he's not going to have that concern. Well, Matt, we're going to hear about the uh, the finish for years. I mean, people are going to talk about the way that ended. But I think at the end of the day, like you talked about, with the long delay that they would have taken to clean clear that track, and, and it wasn't just clear the track of the debris. It was they had to rebuild that uh, front end of the of the pit because that's just a safety hazard, and they're not going to you know risk anything like that happening again. And then if you do wait that I don't know thirty fifty minutes, whatever they were going to talk about taking at the end of the day, you're going to have either. Sato is still going to win this thing because he had a pretty good 
good lead going with those three or four laps to go. Or, you know, Dixon's going to beat him and people are going to say, well, geez, he wanted kind of, uh, they kind of set it up for him to win. So there was no way to win that thing as far as the, the, the series was going or the way that the sanctioning body came. They had to make that call to shut it down. Now, speaking of shut it down, a couple of months ago, Roger Penske said he wasn't going to run the Indy 500 in front of an empty grandstand. Apparently, TV money said different, and they ended up having to do it. I, I don't know. This might have been a good year, though, to just put the Astros out there and say, you know, call it a war year. Call it a pandemic year. We don't have the Indy 500 this year because we can't do it right. Thoughts on that, Matt? That's not even realistic because there wouldn't be an IndyCar series next year. It's not even so much about TV money as it was about the, the sponsorship money that had been sold to every team. Uh, IndyCar is not like NASCAR in the sense that you have the big TV contracts that are given to teams. Um, it's it's not structured that way in IndyCar. But there was a, a good story written by Joey Barnes last week on Auto Week uh, that he talked to a couple of team owners and they all basically said that we needed this sponsorship money and if we didn't run something called the yep. Indy 500, 500 miles at Indianapolis, our biggest race of the year. And look, this, this is still the biggest race of their year, fans or not. If we didn't give that to our partners and give that opportunity to our partners, they're not paying us for this year. They're not coming back for next year. And without teams, you don't have an IndyCar. So I, I think it was the right move. I mean, listen, a lot of the stuff from Roger and Bud Denker and, and everyone at Penske Entertainment Group, Mark Miles, Jay Fry, they're politicking a little bit, right? I mean, a lot of it is, you know, they're trying to be very clear that, to the fans that they did everything they could have fans appear. Now, I will say this. There is a state of the sport press conference the week before the 500 and Mark Miles made it clear no one told us to stop fans from coming. This was IndyCar's decision. This was IMS's decision. They looked at the numbers that had started to spiral out of control in Indiana and parts of the Midwest, and they did not think they could do it in a way that was safe. And I think that's an interesting thing to say because, you know, one state over is, well, two states over is Iowa, and there was a big outbreak for the World of Outlaws, and I think their number is up to 35 people uh, from the race that replaced the Knoxville Nationals, their biggest race of the year. And I don't, I don't think that it would have been a good look for IndyCar and IMS to have even 25% capacity and then a bunch of them come home and you've got 5,000 people saying they've got symptoms. It's, that's also a no-win scenario. Well, yeah, and the, and the hotels, the restaurants, everybody else in Indy, they didn't want people coming in from out of state, from wherever they're coming from. I mean, yeah, that, that was definitely the right call on the fans. Uh, on the track, Matt, we had a, I, I picked out a few drivers that I thought had interesting days, uh, I guess interesting to the bad. Uh, Rossi finished uh, 27th. He was a lot of people's favorite to, you know, he's been knocking on that door for a couple years and he was just not a non-factor. Uh, Fernando Alonso, maybe his last shot at this thing, uh, finished 21st. And and Castro Neves, again, maybe his last shot at this thing. Uh, you know, he's 45 years old. Uh, he's He finished 11th, but was really never in the hunt I, I, for, for the for the win. Uh, Matt, th- talks on, thoughts on Rossi, Alonso, and, and Castro Neves? Yeah, it's unfortunate for Alexander Rossi because Obviously, he won as a rookie in 2016, and up until Sunday, he had never finished outside of the top 10. He is so good at Indianapolis. And, you know, the, the irony of this race is, is that there were two elite teams. It was it was Alexander Rossi and, and Scott Dixon, and neither of them won. Uh, there was it, it came down to the pit road penalty. That was a very dubious, questionable, easy to dispute early release penalty because Takuma Sato was in the slow lane. Uh, that's a coin flip. And, you know, by the definition of the rule, yeah, that's probably a penalty. And you don't want to start turning everything into a judgment call. A lot of people were like, uh, you know, Steph Wilson, the occasional IndyCar driver, Justin Wilson's brother. He's like, well, that ruined the intensity 
intensity of the race. Well, you can't judge your decisions based on you know whether or not this was a contending driver or not. That was the rule. But it was also so close. You could also argue... Mm-hmm. Maybe it, it wasn't a violation. But yeah, Elio and, and Fred, Fernando, I think both will be, will be back. I think Elio is going to be back full time. He's got sponsors. He's got partners. I, I think what you're going to see from Elio is he's got enough money to either run just the month of May with a really good team like a Penske, like an Andretti, or he could take that money and run for a slightly um, smaller team and, and take your chances. And that's kind of what you're looking at there. It takes about a million to run the month of May. And I think he's got, you know, two to three. So do you want to go run the full schedule and be okay? Or do you want to run the month of May and, and be a, a four-time Indy 500 winner? Alonzo? Uh, Alonzo will be back. You know, he's going to be 42 when he comes back, once he's done with Renault and F1. And there's been several guys who have won the, the 500 for the first time at 42 and above. Um, and certainly as long as he can continue to stay with a great team, that's the other part of the equation, uh, he'll have a shot at completing the Triple Crown. I don't think we've seen the last of him but they both drove chevys fernando and elio and chevrolet just was not as competitive as they needed to be on sunday and you know they tried some alternate strategies that trapped them at one point one lap down and they were just non-factors throughout the race alonzo crashed in practice and they had a couple of specialty parts on the car that they had only one of and that car was never the same after that practice crash either well and you talk about the ages of some of those drivers i mean sato's 43 so yeah, there's there's more you know life in in Alonso's career. He'll be like you say, 42, I believe, 41, 42 when he when he comes back in 2023. I guess is uh, when he says it's is the next chance for him to come back. Yeah, I guess he'd be 42 mm-hmm. that year. So he's got another shot or two at it if he wants to. I can't believe he wants to leave uh, Indy with with you know this kind of a showing because uh, this was this was not real good for him. And uh, I know he still wants to get that triple crown and and all that. Hey, one thing I'll leave you with before we go on to something else. Uh, one thing I will bet on this week, uh, IndyCar's got their doubleheader at what used to be Gateway. Now I think it's what Worldwide Technology Speedway in Madison, Illinois. Um, yes. One thing I will, one thing we will say, Sato will not win this weekend. Um, I just did some homework for another story I'm working on. The last time we had a driver win the week after you know winning the 500, you have to go back to 1997 and Ari Leyendijk. So there is a hangover, and uh, even though we're going to you know back to Madison instead of the last few years we've been going to from indy to belle isle a total different situation road course versus you know the big super speedway we're going at least to an oval over in madison don't look for sato to win this week but uh i tell you what it was a great win for him and and it, and it was really cool to see uh, ray hall letterman lanigan you know back up on the top spot it, it, i i'm with you man i thought it was a great race a great weekend and uh i'm glad they did it two rebuttals though i mean uh Sato's not having to do the whirlwind tour because you can't go send people. In yeah, person. you're right. You're right. It's and different. The, yeah. And the other thing is too, who won last year's race at Gateway? Yeah, so Sato won a gateway, and then yeah, and uh, so yeah, maybe this is maybe this is going to break some history. We'll have to make some make keep an eye out for that. Again, Sato, a really popular winner. I mean, uh, uh, I think a lot of people like uh, you know the fact that he did did get that second win, and like you you mentioned, it's a, it's a legitimizer for his first win, and and uh, everything is good. I mean. 
mean, this was this was a great race. I'm glad they did it. And and Matt, keep beating the drum for a no green white checker at the 500. We don't need to create uh, something that's not there. There's other news though in the racing world. NASCAR is starting to wrap up. Mike, what the heck's going on with NASCAR? I'm going to defer to Matt because he is all over this thing. But we do have the last week of the NASCAR regular season, and I think as many eyes as that will be on the front of the field are going to be somewhere in the middle of the field because we got to find out if uh, Jimmy Johnson is going to make the playoffs in his last uh, NASCAR season. I hope he gets in. I think it'd be good for NASCAR. Obviously great for Jimmy's legacy and all that. Matt, is he going to get in? So this is going to be a very exciting race. I mean, it's Daytona. It's the first year uh, they've they've made the playoff cutoff race at Daytona. So you're going to have a bunch of guys who have no chance to make the playoffs outside of winning, trying to win their way in. And if they can't, there's a couple of guys tightly wadded together uh, in points as well. You've got Matt DiBenedetto, who is nine points to the good. William Byron is four points to the good. Jimmy Johnson is four points out. Eric Jones is 50 points out. So Eric Jones could do it on point. He needs a lot of people to crash early. But you know that battle there between Matt DiBenedetto, William Byron, Jimmy Johnson, that is going to be thrilling to watch because there's two chances to gain stage points in the middle of the race, and then there's a chance to win. And you know, like you said, this is Jimmy Johnson's final season. He's going to run 14 to 15 IndyCar races next year. Don't expect to see him doing a lot of stock car stuff moving forward. He wants to go out contending for a championship. He wants to go out there like his mentor did, Jeff Gordon and have a chance at the championship race in his final season, his final race. And he had raced his way back in on Saturday and then lost it on, on Sunday and they're neck and neck. So, you know, there's a lot of different storylines here. We had talked to Jimmy's crew chief earlier today when we recorded this, Cliff Daniels. And there are two points I want to bring up that he said because I think they were very interesting things. He said, no matter what happens, Jimmy Johnson's legacy is intact. His legacy will not be defined about whether or not he makes the playoffs in his final season. If he makes it, it adds to his legacy. If he doesn't, he just didn't make it. Things happen. He got disqualified after finishing second in the the Coca-Cola 600. He missed a race because of the coronavirus, the positive test. So it's not purely on his speed or his results. A lot of this is circumstantial. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what Jimmy can do to add to the legacy, but he's not going to, to lose any of it at all. But here's the thing that's really interesting to me. Jimmy Johnson, William Byron, they're racing for that final spot, but both of them have said they're planning to work together on Saturday because if you don't work with your teammates, no one else is going to push you. Uh, the Toyotas and the Fords, they're not going to help Jimmy Johnson or William Byron. They're only going to help each other. So basically, expect to see the 48 and 24 running nose to tail. And when you get close to the, the stage break, they're going to race each other. They're going to try to duck out and be the guy that's in front of the other. But you're going to see those guys nose to tail throughout the race, only racing each other when points are on the line. So I think that is such a fascinating kind of dichotomy. I think it's fascinating too. Matt, that it could shake out to become Jimmy doesn't make it, and the reason he doesn't make it is because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the race he missed. I mean, if he's yeah. within a couple of points, that's all it was. You know, and it, and that would be, on some on some respect, kind of fitting, I guess, because it's such a crazy year, but it would also be kind of sad on, on the other side. So, uh, let me say this to your point. So, say he finishes second in the Coca-Cola 600, which he did, but he lost all of his points because of the, the disqualification. If you give him those 47 points, he's good by uh, yep. 42 points. So that, plus the race he missed for the Brickyard, you give him those 40 points, he's good by 100 points. So it's not purely because of a lack of speed by Jimmy. It just, this happened. And so now you got to go out and you got to do something about it. I sense this might be your Monday column there, Matt, uh, if he doesn't get in. It might be, yeah. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people will say, 
you know, well, this somehow takes away from Jimmy's career. And that's, oh, that's, <laughs> that's not, laughable. Yeah. You know, 84 yeah. wins, seven championships. He's going to go out and have some fun in IndyCar. He hasn't, he hasn't adapted to this new package too. I mean, Jimmy said it last week on the, the Dale Jr. podcast. He says he really misses horsepower, that he, he doesn't feel like he can showcase his talent when he's not lifting off the throttle. And it's all, all about momentum. He's looking forward to IndyCar because he, he likes driving cars that are big power, no grip. And I, I think Jimmy's going to surprise a lot of people in IndyCar and make and make a lot of people question, do we need to have drivers not lifting off the throttle if a Jimmy Johnson can go drive IndyCar and be just as great as he ever was? We'll see. You know, we talk about the legacy of Jimmy Johnson and and would this taint anything? Well, of course it won't. I mean, look, just look at uh, Richard Petty. I mean, Richard Petty went his last seven years of his career or eight years, I guess, without winning a race. And was his legacy tainted? Of course not. You know, the debate's going to go on now is who's number one of all time. Again, a debate that'll never have a definitive answer. But I mean, it's got to be Jimmy or Richard, I guess, unless you want to throw uh, somebody uh, else Dale? in there, Matt. I, you, Dale, yeah, Dale is interesting. I mean, obviously the career was cut short. Uh, how much more do you have left in him? Uh, the, the three of them lined up side by side. I don't know if Dale fits one or two, but but again, it's a fun debate to have. And, and Jimmy is not going to fall out of that debate no matter what happens this weekend. No. To me, the Mount Rushmore, and it pains me to say this as a Jeff Gordon guy. It's um, Richard, Jimmy, Dale, and Kale. Kale over Kale over David Arbor. Pearson. Yeah, over just, David um, Pearson. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Who doesn't love a good leafy green? But before we go, the <laughs> F1 is returning. It's a bit of an off week this past week, but they are hitting, uh, I believe, Spa. It's going to be an interesting race. Spa before two more in Italy. So it's a th- another three races in three weeks. Uh, you know, and also I think the big news this week coming out of Formula One was they finally got their schedule figured out for the rest of the way. So at least we know how many races they're going to have. And I think now that can, uh, you know, people can start setting up their strategy, knowing that there are going to be 11 more races to go. Um, you know, there was talk that it might only be nine or 10. And that makes a difference when you're trying to chase down a, a Lewis Hamilton, who's already got about two races in hand on the field. He's got a 37 point lead going into this weekend on uh, Verstappen, Max Verstappen and 37 points, as everybody knows, in that follows F1. That's that's a race and a half, almost two races uh, with 26 points possible. And the only way you're making up 26 points on a week is if you win, have the fastest lap. Oh, by the way, the rival you're chasing or trying to catch has got to you know crash out or not even finish in the top 10. And that's been a long time since we've seen that happen out of Mr. Hamilton. So um, anyway, they're at their spa this week. I think that's going to be a, a fun weekend. And again, first of three races and three weekends. And uh, after these next three, then I think we'll have a real good picture on is Verstappen a legitimate challenger or is this just going to be a Lewis Hamilton, you know, stroll to the finish line and, and another championship? And another championship that would obviously tie the great Michael Schumacher. Yeah, and when we went into the season, there was some rumor, and I think I had even, uh, you know, the, the surmised that maybe a Hamilton would win this year. You know, maybe pull a Nico Rosberg on some level and say, you know what, I, I, by that point he'll have the all-time winning uh, or most wins. He's already got the most poles. He will have tied, you know, Michael Schumacher. Uh, you know, that would be, that wouldn't have been a bad time to just say, you know what, I'm good. Uh, you know, we'll, me and Michael will walk off into the sunset together and, you know, as, as the all-time greats. And then I've got a lot of other records. But no, we've already heard Hamilton say he plans on going two, three more years. So, uh, you know, all, every record that Schumacher has set is, is going down. It's just a matter of when. And I think the championship is uh, is going down this year. We're going to get, uh, you know, that tie. And then uh, Hamilton's going to have at least uh, two more shots at, at getting to number eight. And uh, when he gets there, uh, you know, with no rule changes of any significance next year, there's no reason to 
he won't be a heavy favorite going into next year. Probably happen next year. I believe there is one significant rule change for the Mercedes team. I believe the DAS has been banned for 2021. I remember that happening. I might be wrong. Yeah, that's happened. Yeah, that's happening. Um, I don't know if that, how much of a factor that's going to be. I mean, these you know, it's it's it, it won't hurt. I guess the rest of the field, but right now, I don't think there's enough power in the rest of the field to catch these guys. So we'll see. I'm looking forward to this weekend as always. Mercedes has not won at Spa in a couple of years. Uh, Ferrari's won the last two years. I don't expect Ferrari to win this year, but uh, Hamilton has finished second the last two years at Spa. So he's he's got that little chip on his shoulder. So it's going to be a fun weekend. Looking forward to uh, qualifying uh, this Saturday. If you are an F1 fan, don't miss qualifying for this one. Uh, only twice, I think, in the last 12 years, uh, somebody outside of the first row has won this race. So it's uh, it's significant to qualify first or second, probably to, to have a shot at this thing. And if you have some downtime in between watching uh, Formula One qualifying, don't forget to head over to the Apple Podcast Store. Drop us a five star. Let us know how we're doing. And also, maybe if you're feeling frisky, head over to Quick Spin presented by Auto Week. Give that a download, t- uh, give it a listen. But I think now is a good time to wrap it up. Thank you guys. And also, thank you so much for listening.